This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We'll begin today, though, with another, I think, a very interesting and could be uh, extremely impactful decision or proposal or idea that is at least making the rounds on Parliament Hill. This from Federal Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, who's considering lowering the legal alcohol limit for licensed drivers. In a letter to her Quebec counterpart, Stephanie Valley, on May 23rd, Wilson-Raybould suggested that lowering the limit to 50 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood from the current 80 milligrams. So basically going from a legal blood alcohol limit of the current 0.08% to 0 Five. So let's bring in the Director of Legal Policy with MAD Canada. His name is Dr. Robert Sullivan, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Dr. Sullivan, how are you? I'm, I'm fine. It's uh, Solomon, but that's fine. Excellent. I appreciate the correction. No well, problem. Let's get into uh, this issue. Is this something that MAD Canada is uh, uh, approving? Yes, Mad Canada has advocated for lowering the blood alcohol level to 0.5 for about uh, 17, 18 years. And the reason why we've taken this position is that the vast majority of comparable countries, about 82% of, of uh, about 55 countries, have already lowered their blood alcohol level to 0.5. So Canada is out of step with modern traffic safety re- research. Every jurisdiction which has lowered its blood alcohol level has achieved sustained and substantial reductions in impaired driving deaths and injuries. So we favor this because it will reduce deaths and injuries on our roads. Um, at the same light, I mean, uh, we're going from, at least the proposal is, 0.08 to 0.05. Why not go all the way to zero? Well, again, um, a number of jurisdictions have blood alcohol levels uh, below 0.05. Uh, but the simple reality is we're very, very unlikely to ever get that at the federal level for, on a political uh, basis. So from my perspective, the issue is not whether we're spiritually pure uh, uh, and ideologically correct, but whether what the federal government is proposing will improve the situation. And so we think that the minister should be congratulated on this uh, initiative because it will reduce deaths and injuries. The other thing about a zero-five limit is it won't interfere in any way with what most of us believe to be social drinking it will discourage people from getting drunk and getting behind the wheel of a, the car. Uh, and so it, it seems like a, a, no, a no-brainer. Every traffic safety research organization, uh, a credible organization, supports 0-5. The National Transportation Safety Board in the United States advocated 0-5 in 2013. Utah was the first state to go to uh, 0-5. The other thing is that that Canada currently has one of the world's worst records in impaired driving. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, Canada had the highest level of, of impairment among fatally injured drivers and the second highest rate of per capita alcohol-related crash deaths. And the, most other countries have done a much better job of separating drinking from driving. This isn't an anti-drinking measure. Germans consume 33% more alcohol per capita than we do, and yet our per capita rate of alcohol-rated crash deaths is five times greater than theirs. And the difference is they have effective laws, and it's about time Canada implemented laws which we know 
will reduce deaths and injuries. What makes the 0.05% number most accessible? I mean, what, what's the difference between uh, 50 and 80 milligrams? Is that a drink? Is that two drinks? And I, I know that's all dependent on the person, but what is the big difference? Well, again, you're right. It depends on uh, gender and, and weight and how fast you drink. But even if the blood alcohol level was 0.5, a 180-pound man could have three drinks in two hours on an empty stomach, and they wouldn't be close to the limit. Uh, a 130-pound woman could have two drinks in two hours and be below the limit. 0.5 does not interfere with social, with social drinking. The reason why 0.5 uh, seems to be an appropriate measure is that is the point at which the relative risk of crash death begins to rise sharply. So we know, for example, 16 to 20-year-olds um, are 12 times more likely to die in a single vehicle nighttime crash if they have a blood alcohol level between 0.5 and 0.8 than if they are sober. So that seems to be a reasonable threshold for when alcohol begins to pose an unacceptable risk. So they've done studies on, you know, a simu- you know closed-circuit uh, uh, roadway tests, on driving simulators, and so 0.5 seems to be the level at which the uh, relative risk and the impairment of skills rises sharply. Uh, I'm sure uh, many opponents of this idea will say this is uh, this is only going to clog up our already stuffed court system. And, and you chuckle because I, I'm sure you've heard that time and time again. Well, there's a standard set of alcohol industry arguments that have been made uh, in Western Europe, in Australia, uh, that were made in the United States when the United States went from 0.10 to 0.08. The interesting thing is that uh, exactly the opposite appears to be the case, that when you lower the blood alcohol limits, it has a significant deterrent impact. And what happens is charges uh, 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 and impaired driving decrease. And that was the experience in Ireland. Now, it was somewhat more complicated in Ireland because they introduced two major uh, measures. But again, there's no evidence in the research literature from Australia, which introduced 0.5 30 years ago. There's no evidence from Western Western Europe. Uh, the last time, uh, you know, uh, so it just isn't the the evidence just <clears throat> isn't isn't there. So what you're saying is basically dropping from uh, 80 milligrams to 50 milligrams is is going to force more people to really think twice about having even one drink. I know, uh, probably won't force them to think carefully about having one drink because it won't interfere with social drinking. Hmm. Uh, it's going to uh, interfere with people who drink, who, who tend to drink heavily. What happened in a number of other jurisdictions is people were more careful. Some people decided that if they're going to drink, they weren't going to drive. Other people arranged for alternate transportation. Sales of light, light alcohol products uh, increased. Um, the other thing is this measure had no deterrent impact on the hospitality industry in Western Europe, in Australia, or any other jurisdiction in which it has been uh, 
it has been uh, implemented. Funny you mention that. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Robert Solomon, uh, Director of uh, Legal Policy with MAD Canada here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott this week. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Francois Meunier, I'm not sure if you saw his comments or not, he works uh, for an association that represents restaurateurs in Quebec, saying the proposed changes would be a disaster for the province's restaurant industry, particularly for business owners outside the big cities, basically saying the new rules mean a woman can have one drink, a man in most cases two, forget about a bottle of wine for two for Valentine's Day dinner, that's over. Uh, well, simply factually, it's not true in terms of blood alcohol uh, 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 limits. Uh, uh, and uh, the the evidence isn't there. I mean, that hasn't had a, uh, this kind of deleterious impact um, uh, in, in in any other jurisdiction. Uh, the last time I went to Australia or Western Europe, they seemed to be uh, 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 alive and well. The hospitality industry. This is the same argument the hospitality industry made when they suggested limiting smoking. Uh, so this is standard fare. You can expect this. There is no evidence uh, to to uh, support it. The other thing that I think we should keep in perspective when people say, oh, my goodness, you know, if we lower the blood alcohol level, we'll clog the courts and have an adverse effect on the hospitality industry. Would any, anyone ever suggest that we cut back on enforcement of assault and sexual assault because it would clog the courts? Not at all. Why is it that victims of impaired driving aren't entitled to the same level of respect and protection as the victims of other uh, violent crimes. Oh, by the way, impaired driving is the number one criminal cause of death. How many, for how many years are we going to continue to make excuses for alcohol and pretend that it doesn't impose social costs on society? We're in agreement on that, and we are out of time. Dr. Solomon, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. An interesting scenario that has developed involving... Uh, a couple of businesses on King Street. Cloud Nine Vapor Lounge and the Village Dispensary. They're at 275 King East. Uh, it was one time a, a cannabis culture. It received notice at the end of July that uh, the city has filed an injunction and in an attempt to force them uh, to close on August 22nd, which is coming up in a few weeks. More than 5,000 people have signed a traditional petition in the store. Remember those? Uh, there's also a, uh, a petition on change.org. Uh, her name is Brittany Guerra. She's uh, the past owner of Cannabis Culture Hamilton, now Cloud9 Vapor Lounge in the Village Dispensary. And she says that uh, the businesses will fight for their right to exist and that they will not be intimidated by the city's latest action. And Brittany joins us now on The Scott Thompson Show. Brittany, how are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Uh, it's actually Rick in for Scott, but that's okay. I've been called worse. that's okay Uh, maybe let's take a step back here and and tell our listeners about what what has been going on what has happened and and take us from uh, I guess the starting point to where we are now okay so we'll start with uh, my initial transition into Hamilton from Vancouver I initially started my cannabis career in Vancouver and worked there for six years alongside Jody Emery because Mark was currently at the time incarcerated as the advertising manager for cannabis culture magazine So around four years ago, I moved back home. I was born in Burlington, uh, moved home to Hamilton, and just kind of sat around and watched the cannabis industry going on in Hamilton. There wasn't really too much to speak of. There was one dispensary and one vapor lounge, and I was kind of waiting back for the perfect time to open up a vapor lounge. It was my first venture back into the scene in Hamilton. So I opened up Cloud9 in 2015 
on the original location at Barton Street. And a few months later, a franchise dispensary gave me an offer. This was previous to Cannabis Culture to open up um, a weeds location, which I did that. And then eventually Cannabis Culture approached me and said that they want uh, me to open a dispensary downtown Hamilton if I could find a location. And I happened to, one of my very good friends was going through, um, he was going through some sort of issues with the restaurant that was existing in that building. And uh, we worked out something that Cannabis Culture could come in and rent it from him. And uh, that's how that started. And it was a big, gigantic uh, success from the very, very start. And, you know, um, unfortunately, Toronto Cops came through in Project Theater and went to five or six different cannabis cultures across the country and pulled me away from that business. So I'm no longer allowed to attend Cloud Nine, which is above the dispensary, due to my condition. So... Uh, that's where that is right now, and we've gotten like multiple bylaw tickets for selling pop or chips or silly stuff for the vapor lounge. I myself am not allowed to represent dispensaries in this battle, but as the city picks Cloud Nine, which is my business, which the cops know it's my business, everybody knows it's my business. Uh, I have to be, able, I have to represent it, and I have to fight for people's rights to medicate in safe spaces. Maybe we'll get a description of what exactly, uh, just so we, we can uh, lay everything on the table and nobody has some preconceived kind of notions on, on what is happening in these two businesses, but explain what goes on in Cloud9 and, and the Village Dispensary. What happens there? What, what's going on? So the Village Dispensary, like, I, it isn't my dispensary. I'm not allowed to represent it. I'm not allowed anywhere near the business. But what happens is it is a, a dispensary where people come in and purchase cannabis. And Cloud9 sells vaporizers and allows people to smoke their cannabis upstairs in vaporizers. It sells pop and chips. We have one of the most successful comedy nights in the city every Wednesday night. It's packed all the time. It gives users, it's like similar to a bar in Cloud9 without supplying the product. And, and there's also, and we should uh, reference this, that it is uh, not contravening the Smoke-Free Ontario Act either because it's vapor. Is that correct? Right, yeah, it's all vaporization done through the volcanoes. We've had tobacco bylaw come through. You know, they they're coming at us from all angles. It's been from sign permits to pop and chip permits to like tobacco coming through. So this is just their like final push to get us out of the neighborhood. Obviously, that final push is an injunction to force uh, both uh, businesses uh, to close on August twenty second. Talk about that process. What's happening there? So what happens is the city would file an injunction to close the business, saying that we're a threat to the community, which is absurd because we've been open since November and there has not been one fight or one breakout of violence in any form in either of those businesses. And uh, there's no threat to the public safety other than increasing business in the neighborhood. Why do you feel your businesses should continue to operate? I feel like we offer a service to the city of Hamilton. Like with the Vapor Lounge, I myself know people who have come to the lounge and their lives have literally changed. It's given them a new circle of friends, a community that they, that they can hang out with and agree with what they do instead of going to a bar and getting drunk every night. They can sit in a vapor lounge and vaporize and watch a comedy show and hang out with friends on a social level. There's nothing threatening or dangerous about that in any way, shape, or form. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure opponents and, and the city and, and perhaps police have said that, uh, you know, we're going to keep a, a, a watchful eye on these places because we don't want people to be uh, sharing cannabis or, or marijuana because that's, uh, you know, we're entering now the trafficking realm of, uh, you know, the, the law. Is that is that correct? Is that a fair statement? Uh, in vapor lounges, it's not entering a traffic lounge, trafficking, like, I had the drug advice squad go into that business and tell me on the phone right after that it's very innovative and it's going to be very successful once marijuana is legal. So it's, it's contradictions coming from all sides. It's, it's very forward thinking and it's going to be great and these spaces are going to be all around, but you're not allowed to do it until we say it's okay. I guess one of the positives too, it, it is, uh, you know, instead of doing this in a back alley or or, in, or in even someone's home, I guess that would be, you know, somewhat safe. Uh, but still, this is providing a, um, a safe place for people to congregate and and do what they want to do in, in that safe environment. Right. And not only that, but there are also 23 confirmed dispensaries in this city, as well as three vapor lounges with a total customer base of over 100,000 people. Like, if it was me, myself, doing this by myself and nobody was showing up and nobody was supporting it, then okay, fine, close your doors. But the people of Hamilton are speaking. Every day when they go to these stores, even though they're continuously raided, even though they're continuously bombarded with police, the next day, they stand outside and wait for the police to go. They have a nice day as they pass and go into the store. We're chatting with uh, Brittany Guerra, owner of Cloud9 Vapor Lounge, and uh, uh, also, uh, I guess, in, in uh, a part of the village dispensary. I mean, I guess that was the brainchild. Uh, one-time owner of uh, Cannabis Culture here on the Scott Thompson Show. So why do you feel that the city is going after you? Um, you know, I don't, I don't understand why they would target the cloud specifically. It's not you know, trafficking any marijuana. Okay, yes, it is above a building, but it's not doing anything wrong. And I feel, I don't understand why they targeted knowing it was the biggest activist-backed business in the city. Because they should know that there would be a challenge. Has anyone given you a reason as to why they are going through this injunction? Uh, no, it's my lawyer just states that it's a public safety threat. And, you know, all of the businesses that surround us surround us are so happy for us to be here are excited they're they're this block is booming and the lrt is supposed to be coming through this street and tearing it all up and it's not going to be good for businesses and that business is going to be the only one that has people coming on foot and every you're, day and you're ready to meet the city in court yes like i am as well as the other guys with the village and the lawyers we're all petitioning trying to work together to help us to get this going because it's a necessary thing in the city. And again, like I said, the people of Hamilton speak every day by shopping at these stores, knowing that they're illegal every day. And that's the dispensaries, not the vapor lounge side of it. Like the people of Hamilton want cannabis. Well, I, uh, I wish you good luck. I'm not sure how it's going to end. Uh, keep us up to date and abreast of uh, the situation. And we'll certainly follow up as this uh, continues uh, down this road. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Brittany, thanks for the time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Public Health Agency of Canada also getting ready for something. And it's not necessarily in that war realm. Uh, They're getting ready for, and as they should, a future influenza pandemic. 
but it's how they're getting ready and some of the steps that they have taken that uh, really raised my eyebrow and I think caught the attention of uh, many other people out there. They're basically asking or have asked for funeral homes to be prepared in case of a future influenza pandemic. Some of the recommendations, and they have a few, include making plans if one of their own gets sick and making arrangements with volunteers to dig graves. It's uh, it's morbid to think about. But obviously if a uh, an earth-shattering or earth-rattling influenza pandemic strikes, uh, we have to be ready. We have to have these, these steps in place. Yves Bertwain is uh, board president for the Funeral Services Association of Canada and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Yves, how are you? Very well, Rick. Yourself? Not too bad. So uh, can you shed a little more light on what the Public Health Agency of Canada is requesting? Uh, yes, uh, we're just a little bit quite a surprise. Uh, uh, we're not in contact with them recently. But, I mean, it's like uh, it's like when SARS happened or things like that. Um, we have a, most of home in Canada have a plan. Uh, every association uh, across uh, Ontario and uh, different uh, association across Canada all have a uh, plan for that. I mean, for a big accident or SARS or like this, we're prepared and we're not fully prepared because we don't know exactly the size of it or where it could be. You know, uh, so the government is now just popped up like that and ask us, uh, you know, to be prepared. As I said, most uh, free home are prepared without knowing exactly what's going to happen. Uh, the big issue is sometimes is uh, uh, professional staff in a situation like that, that, you know, you need to be careful with your professional staff because it's if it's uh, very demanding, uh, then it's hard to have to protect your staff and make sure that you have enough staff. Uh, for example, in our area, well, we already have a plan of uh, some sort with the, with the town and uh, different or, uh, organization, arena, that if, if uh, anything happened, well, uh, we are kind of ready. But we're not, I cannot say that we're ready 100% because we don't know exactly. Yeah, and you won't know exactly until something does hit. And I guess you know the, the unknown is really the scary part about this. Exactly. As I said, with SARS, I remember when SARS came in, they said, oh, you cannot embalm, you cannot do this and all that. And yes, we're, at that point, it was a matter of, a, the, as you just mentioned, the unknown. Until you know exactly and all that, then you know what you have to do and you're more uh, in line to uh, inform your client and the family. Right now, the way it's, it's mentioned, it's like kind of a panicking a bit. That's why uh, most of home are there to uh, help family and make sure that they, uh, they will be able also to have a, a grieving process. Because there is a grieving process even in, into a situation like that. And there's need to be time for family to uh, recognize the, the death and the grieving process at that point. So it's just not just a matter of digging grave and, you know, uh, doing the interment. So there's a lot of process that needs and the family needs uh, to be uh, to be concerned. 
Uh, one of the, uh, uh, I guess, situations that the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada has identified is uh, in a pandemic, each individual funeral home could expect to handle about six months' work within a six to eight week period. How uh, how crazy would that be? Well, you see, it, it depends where where you would be, uh, because we would, as a plan that we have in our areas, well, we gather all the funeral together, we would centralize, and then we were we were working together at that point. Uh, you know, like. Uh, most home in uh, in Canada, uh, they would do about a uh, uh, hundred call per year. The average would be 100, 150. Now you have big corporation, all that, but most of the home do about 100, 150 call a year. So at that point in our area, for example, well, then we could have a place five or six home that will pull together and will help and will share and will be able to make sure that we're uh, capable of providing the service to the family. Uh, it also said storage space for corpses, and I know this sounds morbid, but storage space for corpses could also be a problem. The agency saying uh, refrigerated trucks or ice rinks could be pressed into service. Yes, uh, I mean, for, for the deceased at that point, uh, that's right. Uh, there's some uh, other uh, utility that uh, could be used. Uh, there could be there's some special, uh, specific trucks. Uh, as I mentioned before, we also in the case like that, we're already organized with the local arena to uh, pose that, make uh, make it like a, a bigger morgue, uh, professionally, you know, accessible for family and friends uh, if they need for identification process and things like that. But yes, if it comes to a point like that, uh, yes, that these are uh, options that uh, are there for us to uh, to apply. Going through the uh, Canadian Pandemic Influenza Plan for the Health Sector document that's on the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada website. Our guest today is Yves Bertillon, uh, the board president for the Funeral Services Association of Canada. We're talking about this document that's online. One of the many items that is listed in this uh, usual process for corpse management in the embalming stage uh, the the one point that really got uh, my eyebrows raised was consider recruiting workers who would be willing to provide this service in an emergency. So basically asking for volunteers to help in the embalming process. I mean, we're, we're talking about a mass pandemic here and, and many people dying. Well, that's that's an area that we've uh, uh, want to sit down with the government because you cannot take a volunteer. You need to have a professional licensed embalmer to be there. I mean, you could have some help from most of our few home. We have some, uh, you know, employee uh, people from the community will come and will come and help us. But only a professional embalmer with a license uh, is capable of providing the professional service to the deceased at that point. So there's some issue that they have on their document that need to be uh, addressed with them at that point. Another point is that uh, during a pandemic that many deaths would not require autopsies. Is that something that should or shouldn't be done? Well, no, and it's, that's up to the coroner to decide that, okay? okay. Uh, uh, it's, it's not the embalmer, it's not the family. It would be the coroner who would uh, then uh, require, for in some of the case, if he's not sure of the cause of death or what caused the death, uh, because each person that uh, dies needs to have medical, uh, and the doctor needs to specify the cause of death. 
So in the case that if they're not sure, uh, well, then the coroner would ask for autopsy. But in a case like that, they would try to do a, as minimum autopsy as possible. There is not because of the lack, you know, a lack of a, a personnel. Uh, there's no danger after you're dead uh, for the transmission. Uh, it can't. It's only when you're uh, living. So, but they will. At that point, I'm sure that the uh, coroner's office would try to minimize as much as uh, uh, possible the uh, autopsy process. One of the unique scenarios as well, and, and you would know this well, is that, uh, you know, during a pandemic, if a person has died as a result of this pandemic and there's a funeral held for this person, uh, there could be cause for concern for others who are attending the funeral, right? Well, I mean, the cause is not because of the disease. Right. The cause, the cause would be for other people that come and visit that they might be, uh, you know, uh, contaminated at that point. But not for the disease. There's no problem for the disease at that point. So, but, but there again, we have some option as to uh, have some visit. Uh, uh, with we have special casket uh, with uh, a window, or we have process where we could have family gathering, uh, you know, into a uh, special place uh, privately, and then there would be a place for the public. So the the process of grieving. It still be done, but it needs to be done more into line and more careful to protect uh, everybody at that point. Uh, we're chatting with Yves Bertillon, the uh, board president for the Funeral Services Association of Canada regarding the Public Health Agency of Canada asking funeral homes to be prepared in case of a future influenza pandemic. Uh, are we well prepared? Are we ready for a pandemic right now? I, I would say yes. I mean, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I cannot, you know, without knowing exactly the pandemic, so we can't. But I mean, uh, most, uh, most homes across uh, Canada are prepared. Uh, they're very professional. There's different associations, and there's a lot of uh, helping together. So uh, in a case like that, uh, there would be uh, enough time for most homes uh, to uh, gather and evaluate the, uh, the, the needs and to make sure that uh, all the family have the time for the grieving also and that uh, all the people are protected. What's going to be the biggest challenge when a pandemic does arrive? Well, it's, it's always uh, uh, people, your staff, and making sure that they're not, you know, uh, at that point, it's uh, time, it's uh, getting organized, uh, knowing exactly what it is. Uh, there's a time at that point, you know, when SARS came in, well, it took a few weeks before, uh, could we embalm, could we not embalm, uh, could we do it? So there's a, a time at that point of taking the time to evaluate and making sure that we're not into a situation which is, as you mentioned, the unknown. So we have to be able to come up with a plan that will respond to that point. So are these guidelines, is this document official, or are there continuous changes being made to it? Oh, no, it's, uh, there, there's some changes uh, making, uh, because we're, we will approach the government, uh, also with the coroner's office, medical uh, people, uh, and we're, we're sitting down usually about every year to revisit and, and relook and uh, to uh, try to adapt and modernize. If I want our process at that point. Eves, appreciate the time. Thanks a lot for the insight. Thank you, sir.
Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.